Hi, I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to In Conversation with Amanda Lang. On this program, you'll hear journalist and best-selling author Amanda Lang's analysis of contemporary events, issues, and ideas exclusively for The Hub. In Conversation with Amanda Lang is hosted by The Hub's editor-at-large, Sean Spear. If you're enjoying this program, please visit our website at www.thehub.ca for all kinds of great thinking and insights into the big issues and ideas driving the public conversation. The Hub's podcasts featuring Amanda Lang are generously supported by the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be back in conversation with award-winning journalist and best-selling author Amanda Lang for another installment of our bi-weekly video and podcast series on the key issues concerning Canadian business, economics, and public policy. In today's conversation, we'll take up two topics. First, Federal Immigration Minister Sean Fraser's announcement this week of a so-called digital nomad strategy, including targeting H-1B visa holders in the United States, and what it tells us about the government's bet on immigration policy as its key economic driver. And second, a wild week in Canadian journalism, including the passage of the Online News Act, Meta's announcement that it's getting out of news content in Canada altogether, and reports that Post Media and the Toronto Star may soon merge. We'll talk about what it all means for the news media landscape and Canadians' ability to access news and information. Amanda, thanks as always for joining us. Great to be here. We're speaking on June 29th. This morning, the popular American economic blogger, Noah Smith, published a long-form essay about what he calls Maximum Canada. In it, he outlines the country's significant population growth in the past year, 1 million new residents in 2022 alone, and the general focus on highly skilled immigration. He calls it, Amanda, a nation-building strategy. In particular, he cites a big announcement this week by Immigration Minister Sean Fraser that, among other things, the Canadian government has earmarked 10,000 immigration slots for current H-1B visa holders in the U.S., He's effectively saying that Canada is going to try to poach skilled immigrants from next door to us. What do you think of the announcement? Do you think Canada can win what the minister has called a, quote, global race for talent? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot to like about the thinking here, uh, which, of course, is really, I think, Sean, bringing some innovation to uh, what we're already doing. We're already doing mass immigration. We know the targets are big, the numbers are big, and we've already seen big numbers. So that we're actually looking at our processes and saying, um, you know, how can we do this better? I'm, I, everybody should welcome that, right? There's nothing, no downside. Uh, I, I was, of course, I grinned a little bit at a former director general of Immigration and Refugee Canada quoted saying, you know, Ottawa is very good at making announcements, not so good at managing complex systems. And that to me is actually where this is the rubber meets the road is it, what, how is this going to work? What does it look like? And how we thought through all the ramifications. Um, and we have a bunch of different, they also announced, of course, this expansion of the express entry system. Um, and again, they're targeting um, five plus six with an asterisk categories, um, much needed healthcare, you know, um, ag workers, people that we really do need to attract here. So, I, I mean, I think, I don't know what you think, but I, I, I do think on the surface of it, it's good. Um, by the way, that six asterisk of the express, express entry, which we can talk about if you like, we don't need to, um, is French language proficiency, which I think is... I don't know. I, I'll put that in the bucket of what's that about. Um, but in terms of attracting the workers we want, yeah, if people are languishing in the U.S. with H-1B visas and they can get work here, sure. It does, of course, exacerbate some existing problems we have around housing, around inflation. So I have worries about that for sure. 
Yeah, a ton of insight there. Two issues to flag in particular are the pre-existing immigration backlog, you know, something approaching 900,000 applicants, which speaks to a, a state capacity issue that we've talked about on this podcast and and that you'll be talking about on a, a new hub podcast called The Business of Government in the coming weeks. We can maybe talk about that later. And then second, as you say, the need to align our ambition with respect to immigration with other policy areas, including, of course, housing, which is a subject that we've similarly talked about on this podcast. But I want to follow up with you, Amanda, just on the idea of Canada's place in this global race for talent. You've worked in Canada and in the U.S. My wife is Canadian and Canadian educated, but we moved to the U.S. in 2019 for her work. Why don't you talk a bit about the different factors that influence these decisions and whether Canada has the right mix of economic incentives, cultural environment and public policy to truly compete for top talent? Yeah, and I think those are really the relevant questions. And I do think this is where I, I'm, I would cheer this government in terms of how it's approaching this. And again, it, it has to turn into real action to your point about the backlog. It's all very well to have uh, policies in place. Uh, for the most part, uh, the idea that we can create an environment and th- not let the friction point be getting here. Let's let the friction point be what kind of jobs are here? Can you find housing? Um, can you access the healthcare and the education you need? Those, of course, are friction points that we have to work on. But that that there are talent out there that may want to come to Canada, that we shouldn't let that be the bottleneck. Let's get them here. Um, which is, let's jump to that digital nomad part of this, which is, it's a, it's a smaller sliver of it. But I have to say, I thought it, it I thought that was actually kind of a funny part of the whole announcement and the least logical part. Um, because to me, the digital nomad policy, there's something like 57 countries in the world already have this sort of visa available. And what it means is you can come park yourself with your laptop uh, in our country while working for some other company in some other country. So we just get your your warm presence um, and your latte purchases. Uh, but P.S., you're going to have to take up space in our housing market. You're going to come live here and yeah, rent or, uh, you know, bump somebody else out of a rental pro- property. And so to me, it's a bit you have to kind of ask the question of what are we getting out of that? They hasten to say, you know, some of those people will find work here in Canada and then we'll fast track them for permanent residency. I don't know about that. To me, that seems like a weird way to try to attract people here. Um, and, and, you know, I think it'll cause more problems than it's worth. Um, however, it does match existing programs. Do we have are we competitive with the U.S.? I think we are. I mean, I'll say one thing, Sean, every time we talk about this. It's, I think it's important for Canadians to really celebrate. Uh, we do immigration well. Why do we do immigration well? Because we're all it. We are all immigrants. Uh, we've all, to one degree or another, assimilated into this country. Uh, and so it is a system that works and functions as it should. Um, the only thing, and you know, I, I put this back to you in terms of kind of how policy gets made, because you've seen it from the inside, have, have people really gamed out what it looks like at scale? Because we've had the advantage in Canada of having that self-selected immigrant, um, you know, who was either educated or just had gumption or whatever it is that makes someone pick up and leave the country of their birth and origin and go somewhere else. Um, Now we're kind of trying to scoop as many as we can. And you do, I wonder um, whether or not the model breaks down a little bit. Um, And I say that with, you know, all optimism that it won't. But I worry about that a little bit. Yeah, I think it's. If you, I think, like the two of us, believe that Canadian immigration policy is a tremendous policy success, that the fact that we've achieved 
relatively high levels of popular support for relatively high levels of immigration is an advantage for Canada, then as you say, Amanda, you need to think about these secondary effects in order to preserve that political consensus. Beyond that, I, I would say I, I've come to accept the argument. At first, I was a little skeptical because these things can be hard to measure. They can seem a bit ephemeral, but that Canada's commitment to pluralism and diversity and tolerance are indeed advantages when in the competition for talent that people are drawn here because of those things. But on the other side of the equation, the fact is, you know, especially after accounting for exchange rate, you can make a lot more generally in other jurisdictions, including, of course, the U.S. And so, you know, part of how I interpreted the announcement this week, including the digital nomad part that you mentioned earlier, as well as targeting H-1B visa holders, is that in a way, policymakers are trying to offset the pay advantage that immigrants have when they move to, say, the United States and to try to, in effect, elevate some of these less measurable, but, you know, ultimately important factors that influence where people ultimately want to live and work. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think parts of the announcement that the immigration minister made around um, families joining Families being able to work, obtain work permits while you're waiting for a residency status, things like that. Those are minor adjustments that make a massive difference in a decision by a group of people, because rarely is it an individual. The nomads might be single, but mostly you're talking about groups of people that want to come. I do think that's very successful. I guess what I would say is, you know, when you sit around the cabinet table, um, lean over to uh, the folks that are managing, you know, housing strategies, healthcare, and education. And by the way, those are premiers as well. And make sure that if we're going to bring in a whole family, we're going to fast track, you know, four, five, six people. What's the school situation? What's the healthcare situation? What's the housing situation? And not let the chips just fall. I mean, I, I, now maybe that's happening in the background, but so far you might agree. We've seen an awful lot of talk about the need to solve a housing crisis um, and very little real action, right? We need millions and millions of homes built and where we see housing starts going the other way. So, I don't I don't exactly we see multifamily starts doing OK, but the single family home that people still want going the other way. And, uh, you know, so to me, it has to be a kind of whole of government sort of approach, not just that we have this great idea around immigration. Yeah, well said. In fact, the Noah Smith article that I mentioned earlier specifically cites the divergence between population growth and housing starts as the single biggest threat to this nation building strategy that he otherwise lauds. I would just say as well that as important as it is that we are creating the, the cultural conditions for people to want to come here, we shouldn't take our eye off the ball on wages and pay and productivity either. That for what it's worth for, for my family, you know, one of the principal reasons we chose to go to the United States was that pay advantage. It's meaningful. And, you know, I think the risk is if we rest too much on our laurels about pluralism and tolerance and diversity, as important those things are, we risk taking our eye off the ball of you know, some of these more pocketbook factors that influence these decisions. In some ways, Amanda, that's a good segue to another point I wanted to put to you, though, in terms of how we think of immigration and, and some of these other economic issues at the backdrop. The Business Council of Alberta released a report yesterday 
that sought to disaggregate population growth from economic growth. The basic finding was that Canada's economy is bigger, but not necessarily stronger. GDP grew by 0.8% in Q1, with population growth doing most of the heavy lifting. That's something, as you know, we've discussed before. What do you think about that? How can policymakers make sure that immigration growth, as important as it is, doesn't become a substitute for a broader growth agenda? Well, that's where I would go back and say um, this kind of thinking around policy is in the right direction. So when we say what uh, what are the types of skills, to the extent that we have the ability to do that and we can actually attract and fill gaps in our labor market and um, be very ambitious about that. And I'll jump back to, you know, one of the, the first category of that express visa that we're opting for is healthcare workers. Everybody will agree that's wonderful. Um, I hope the provinces are on board. And more importantly, I hope that the certification boards uh, at various levels in various places are on boards, because otherwise, of course, you're going to run into a crazy, crazy issue of people here unable to work. But to your point, it, it, we know that immigration has a kind of a lag effect. So the, the immediate impact of, again, warm bodies and the needs that they have. Um, incidentally, side note, the one part of the inflation puzzle that is, of course, the one that the Bank of Canada is quite focused on, aside from the very interest rate related uh, mortgage market, is services inflation. And uh, all of these policies, of course, will send services inflation higher. So um, that boost you see to GDP, I bet a lot of it is on that side of the equation uh, rather than kind of the durable good side of the equation. But let's leave that, that the inflation question aside. I don't know what the, maybe you do know the answer to that, how long it takes for somebody to land to uh, to actually begin to contribute, um, to actually increase productivity, which is, of course, the uh, the holy grail here. And then more importantly, and this is sort of the fundamental kind of existential question is, if we if we have the right mix of talent to actually help us build the economy of the future, when AI is at the forefront and quantum computing ever becomes a thing, uh, you know, all of those things that we want to be part of, or do we have the, the skills and the talent to be part of that? That's And that's a, I don't know, five, 10 year kind of a project. Hi, Hub Podcast listeners. Rudyard Griffiths here, the executive director of The Hub. I wanted to ask for your support today. No, I'm not asking for money. I'm asking for your attention. If you could check out right now in our podcast feed a new series that we're dropping, six episodes in partnership with a group called Pathways Alliance. This is the Canadian Industry Association that's tasked with the big, ambitious project of decarbonizing Canada's oil sands. They want to achieve net zero by 2050, and we want to have a conversation with them and you about how to achieve this ambitious goal. Pathways is the hub's first national media and advertising partner. Their support helps us make all these other great podcasts. So if you're enjoying them, please listen to these episodes with Pathways Give us your feedback. We'd love your input, but also share them with friends and family. That would be greatly appreciated. Well, with that advertisement over, let's go back to our regular programming. David Frum, who we talk to regularly at The Hub, has this analogy about immigration policy and and a broader growth agenda that I kind of like. He said something like, Immigration is like a fine wine to pair with a delicious meal. But the delicious meal is that broader set of policy areas, including infrastructure and taxes and regulation and investments, public investments in science and technology and all the rest. You won't have a growing economy if all you're doing is drinking wine. And so I think it is important that Smith is right to laud Canada 
and the steps that we're taking on immigration policy, but it can't become a substitute for a focus on some of these other issues. And in that vein, you know, it seems to me where the U.S. seems to have uh, something of, a, of an advantage is we're seeing major new public investments in science and technology in what's been described as as an industrial policy, and and it seems to me. It'll, there'll be some onus on Canadian policymakers to match on some of those issues as opposed to kind of merely putting forward immigration as the, the kind of centerpiece of our economic agenda. Yeah, although if I if I could push back on that slightly, I mean, that industrial policy in the U.S., I mean, for instance, bringing, um, you know, the fabrication of microchips back to American soil is it is industrial policy. It is, of course, breathtakingly a reversal of where um, the U.S. and other countries have gone on globalization in recent decades. Um, is it job friendly? I don't think so. I mean, those are not unlike our massive industrial policy investments um, in batteries uh, for through VW and then through Stellantis. Do they create massive jobs? Not not meaningful, not dollar return kind of jobs, because they, of course, these are very automated sort of plants. Um, but it keeps us in the game. That's the argument. So I, I think the U.S. is just as offside on on those big industrial policy investments as we are. But that may be a discussion for another day. Yeah, and, and maybe kind of counterintuitively a good segue into your business, which is journalism. There's been so much to discuss recently, including reports that Post Media and the company that owns the Toronto Star may merge. Let me start by asking you to reflect on what appears to be a moment of real turmoil in the news media landscape. What should we make of it, Amanda? I mean, it's a moment of real turmoil in the media landscape. <laughs> I think uh, I think um, we all know that the business model has failed. Um, and that's just simply because the business model got upended. Um, I, you know, it's interesting. We were talking yesterday. I was talking with some people about Netflix and um, the, the fact that uh, the content producers in Hollywood are on strike. And they're on strike because their business model, of course, isn't working anymore uh, because what the, what the cost to create content is not being supported by the end users of that content. And Netflix is really central in this because they were the one that said we could get it for originally $7.99 a month. Um, and then they started making original content and it doesn't work. Uh, we, we didn't actually back into this in the way that Netflix did. Uh, we were always creators of original content in journalism, uh, but we did have a model where the user didn't pay. Uh, we had a third party supporting us, that being advertising. That's not hasn't been happening for years. It's been a declining number. Um, and I guess all I will say is, should two of the major newspapers, I mean, if you just look at sort of the the uh, Ontario, because the Toronto Star, of course, is a massively important um, journalistic presence in that market, should it be reduced to uh, to one from two, uh, leaving, you know, then, then there's obviously the Globe and Mail would be the other rival, also a kind of a, you know, on its hind foot financially. I worry about where the content will come. Um, so I would just step back to, do we care that there's quality journalism? If we're a democracy, we do care because, you know, the history of democracies suggests, um, however short that history may be, that, that that this is an important part of it. So how do we get there? I don't know if two kind of struggling entities coming together is has, has that ever in the history of mergers been, you know, does that does that make a stronger whole? I don't know. Maybe, but I don't know. Yeah, it kind of feels like they're putting together the journalistic equivalent of a, a weapon of mass destruction. But <laughs> I want to bring the conversation selfishly to the hub, if that's okay. We're trying to navigate these secular trends through a unique business model that involves the combination of major philanthropic support and own source revenue. We're not market supported. And it made me think as I was reading the stories this week, Amanda, 
Do you see a world in which journalism at scale can be sustained by the market? Or is the future going to have to be smaller, more targeted forms of journalism like The Hub? Or is there some other alternative that you envision ultimately playing out? So I always, for me, there's the caveat of somebody somewhere um, smarter than me has a solution they haven't offered yet. In other words, there's some innovation to this problem, and I'm, I'm clinging to that hope. I would never have invented the iPhone. However, yeah, it, with, the, with the data we have and the information we have, I would say uh, we know that philanthropy is a model that can work. Um, and what, certainly when it comes to newspapers, we, that's been the history, right? The history has been disinterested uh, parties. In other words, not, not people that are actors in the production of the content, but people that believe in its existence. Um, and that's important. The Jeff Bezos, Washington Post model, it's important. Um, so that's, I do think that is a, a sustainable model and it's one that we, we may need to pursue. Can the user support it? We know they will, right? Uh, you can ask subscribers to contribute and th there's a base that will because we, people believe in it and they want that thing. I think there's a, there may be a more agile way to get there. And I wish we, I wish we were there yet. We're very close where, you know, you could do micro payments uh, very easily um, and without a lot of interface. It's any extra step between you and consuming the product, of course, will, that's enough to make someone skate away from you. If it could just be, you know, hit the space bar and we're going to charge you five cents for this and now you can have it. Um, I think you, you would see a lot more consumption of that kind of, um, is that enough to support a whole newsroom? I don't know. Um, and I think you guys are probably, this is, of course, the, the one of the biggest complaints about things like Bill C-18 um, is that it kind of, it's it's trying to enshrine a model. It's trying to kind of, you know, <laughs> fossilize a model. Um, and it does stifle the innovation that will get us where we need to go. Uh, so it'll slow down the progress for things like the hub that are trying to like, navigate through this. And in the end, quality is what's going to matter. People are are savvy consumers of information. Um, and I do think, even though we've gone through a nasty period of echo chamber journalism and um, you know heavy bias and all the, I think people understand that and we're coming through it. I, I really do. I don't know, if, are you optimistic about that? Do you feel as though there's a kind of a, a reasoned way forward here where there's an acceptance that neutral, unbiased, solid, thoughtful journalism has a place in our world and we do not want to undermine it? Yeah, I, I think that's right. You know, the basic infrastructure has obviously changed. The business models are changing. But, you know, the consequence, it seems to me, is not that people have suddenly lost a demand for news and information. You know, it seems to me that is, in some ways, intrinsic to being curious people in a society or in a, a polity. The question, of course, is just how do we build business models around that that can sustain themselves? And then that vein, as you alluded, Amanda, there's been a debate about the role of government policy at the hub. We've generally been critical of these policy interventions, especially, as you say, to the extent that they create asymmetries between legacy players and new startups like us. Uh, what, what do you think, Amanda? What, if any, role is there for public policy here? Or do you think it ought to ultimately be left up to the market to, to figure this out? I, well, I actually do think there's a role. Um, and I'll say that, you know, admitted, I, I, I classify myself as a child of a certain era. Um, and so I am a big believer in the role government can play in our life. I just am. I, I, I'm not a do away with all of it kind of a mentality. So if that helps people frame where I'm coming from on this, um, I'll offer that up. I believe in public supported journalism. So public broadcasters um, have worked in uh, advanced democracies. Um, many flourishing democracies have more than one. 
Uh, I think if the model is done properly, then there is a, a, a genuine way that citizens can feel good about that. Uh, I'll leave that open about whether we're getting it right in Canada or not. Could, could you extend that equally to uh, print? Well, I will say at the moment, our public broadcaster, the CBC, has a very robust digital print presence. Um, and maybe we don't need to distinguish any longer between a newspaper um, and the online site of the CBC. Maybe those are one and the same um, in a digital age. So uh, if, if you ask me, and I think I, I think a fair number of Canadians, if polled, will say that they, they believe in some form of government support. Again, are we getting it right is a different question, um, but that there be public support for journalism is not, it doesn't have, that does not have to mean that journalism is biased. And in the best scenarios, like the BBC, it absolutely means uh, the opposite. It means it's the neutral trusted source. So I think to me, that would be the ideal uh, scenario is that that's the way forward. And that then there's a huge healthy private market for innovative offerings um, in the space that can then play in more niche ways um, and, and really dig in on things. Yeah, two areas that we've generally been open to or supportive of with respect to the role of government policy is first, you know, perhaps some form of refundable tax credit or voucher system that enables people to essentially invest in different types of journalism. You know, one way to kind of think about it, Amanda, is similar to the way in which uh, the federal government sometimes does humanitarian assistance where it will match contributions of Canadians in response to some kind of global emergency, that may be a way to ensure that public dollars are following some form of market signal that Canadians are ultimately influencing those those investments through their own choices as consumers. Another more wonky one, but one that I think is important is what's called the Qualified Canadian Journalism Organization status which sort of sits somewhere between a for-profit media organization and a conventional charity. It has some of the upsides of a charity, including the ability to issue charitable receipts to donors and contributors, but with greater editorial flexibility and the, the kind of typical ways in which journalistic organizations operate. And that hybrid between the two may ultimately be the path forward for a lot of for-profit media organizations who need that kind of flexibility when it comes to financing. Um, the big challenge at present is the process to get that status is heavily bureaucratic, highly subjective. You know, there probably is a path for reform that makes that process more transparent, more straightforward. But I hope that, you know, speaking about public policy and how it interacts with politics, I think there will be a kind of instinctive sense on the part of the, the Conservative Party to oppose a lot of these public measures, in part because they conflict with the party's preference for markets and so on. Also, just the inherent tendency to oppose what the government is doing. And I, I think actually that the right path is to reform some of these pre-existing measures, including, as I mentioned, the process by which news organizations can convert into QCJOs. I, I, I want to offer up one other, because we I think we're, we might be skip, skipping over this notion, and that is maybe we need to actually roll back um, our thinking a little bit on the private market role um, in journalism, uh, because what's, what, where we've arrived, of course, is we went to the kind of conglomerate style of ownership for a while, and the thinking there was 
these big companies, let's say, oh, I don't know, a telecom company um, that makes a lot of money and part of its business will have this other media part. And and truthfully, historically, Sean, it was, um, and I think if this is true when you were part of the government, that there was a there really was a kind of a public good aspect to that there was a sense that that there was an obligation almost that they would do this the relationship has changed um there seems no longer to be that sense of kind of um you know for the good of all of it and these conglomerate organizations treat every division as though the profit margin has to be the same or the growth rate has to be the same and as an example of that it's funny i've defended uh the grocers um, and, you know, because there people complain that they're making money off inflation. And if you look at their profit margin on food, they're really not. Um, and in fact, for some of them, it's been negative, negative profit margins. They're losing money on food. But then you kind of take a step back. And I think I was a bit remiss in my thinking on this. They were, I'll use Loblaws just to be unfair. They were allowed to acquire Shoppers Drug Mart. And now they're making all their money, as they will tell you, on the pharmacy side. So their margin growth has been in pharmacy. Well, then I might just put my hand up and say, well, if you're making so much money in pharmacy, and we allowed you to kind of get this sort of concentration level in that market. Should you give us a break on the food? Uh, now, I'm, I'm not saying there should be a department of profit and somebody should go in and meddle with the private market. But there is a model that did work where a big company that makes an awful lot of money in one side of its business, I don't know, say telecom, uh, is OK with making less money or even uh, even, you know, let's say flat. I'm not saying people should lose money hand over fist, but it's when you bring that kind of quarter by quarter, how's the profit growth uh, to every division of your your company that you run into trouble? Uh, so that that would be a, mo- a model would be big corporations that believe in democracy, that actually have the wherewithal and want to support it. I just tossed that out there because that was actually what was going on for many years. It was never the most profitable. Well, I guess there was a brief shining moment when the news division, the journalistic divisions were very profitable. But uh, generally speaking, in the conglomerate world, it wasn't really the engine of growth. Um, and that was okay. And I guess I'm wondering whether that could be okay again. Yeah, I won't keep you much longer because I'm standing between you and the Canada Day weekend. But I, one can see something like that playing out, Amanda, in a world in which a post-media Torstar merger is subjected to some kind of antitrust review where the government ultimately approves the transaction with some conditions around the preservation of local reporting or protecting distinct brands and all the rest. And I I think you're right that in a world in which we're dealing with these large companies, we're necessarily interacting with public policy. It is not a kind of pure free market. And that is inevitably going to lead to some kind of, for lack of better term, horse trading. And and at least in the short term, that may be the, the best that we can hope for as some of these broader kind of market forces work themselves out. And in that vein, I want to thank you so much for what's been an insightful conversation, as it always is. Happy Canada Day to you, and I look forward to catching up in a couple of weeks. Happy Canada Day. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family and subscribe wherever you get your audio online. We also appreciate your ratings and reviews. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation. 
and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.